This is uh, Joshua Bell with the Kilt and the Cloth, our Tuesday morning Bible study as we continue the Gospel of Matthew, starting with chapter 16 today. Um, I'm trying to figure out how I want to say this. So last week was this, this moment of conversation where we're starting to see the miraculous and the divine in Jesus. Things that he doesn't even have to be in the same room with people. He's, he's that powerful. He, he, has the, he has the ability to feed five, not just five, but 4,000 people. And there was some good discussion about how important that was, that as he's healing many people, he's healing them from a distance, he's also feeding them. And, and like we discussed, one of the things that uh, is, 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 new, is a new pre- prevalent theory or discussion about Jesus is this idea that if Jesus is coming to take over the empire, then he has to take over the empire, but he doesn't have to do it in the ways of humans, but in the ways of God. And God takes care of your, all of your basic needs. Um, I think I said something to the effect of, or maybe not have, but, you know, the interesting thing about children is is as you work with them, you find out that there's a difference between the understanding of right and privilege. You have the right to have a roof over your head. You have the right to have food. You have the the right to have clothes, you know. Uh, Those are your basic needs, you know. That's kind of where this whole thing comes up. It's a privilege to have a cell phone, right? Um, or glasses. Or glasses, yeah, like for real, like glasses uh, or fancy tennis shoes or, or whatever. Um, those are privileges. What Jesus is focusing in on specifically and the Gospel of Matthew writer is these are the basic needs of the people, and they are starving. So he doesn't just feed five. He also feeds another four. He, they're, they're sick. They're living in awful environments. He cures the illness. They are separated from the kingdom of God. He even heals them from a distance. Um, and then and then they want you to understand, Matthew specifically, he wants to bring you back to Torah. None of the other gospels, by the way, this is where I was going. None of the other gospels talk about the things that defile you uh, against Torah. Matthew only does this because... He wants you to have this Torah-based connection to God through Jesus Christ. Luke, Mark <clears throat> will talk about Torah. They'll discuss it, but they will not talk about how, if you're not living Torah-based lives, you can't be a follower of Christ. Um, John, the Gospel of John, will not even focus in on this. Um, the conversation about John is completely different at that point. So, um, so, Dr. Carter, as I was... Interesting in the fact that Matthew wasn't read first. Right. Yeah, like that's the great statement. Uh, so, chronolog- chronologically, the fact that Matthew was written later, you could see that there's more of an intent of creating a community. My, my favorite part about this is, if you study the Bible this way, versus the, the way we could preach it, you, you start to see how the Christian community really began. And you can see the struggles that they have in the same way that churches have struggles today. At some point or another, you are 
feeding the masses that are full. Does that make sense? Like yeah. you, you can build the church for yourself. And once you've built the church for yourself, what else do you need? Um, I, and I, and it sounds like I'm, I'm getting on a soapbox, but I kind of am. I love the old cathedral-like buildings, the Gothic-like structures that we've built in the name of God. The part that's saddening to me is, is that those churches never move beyond the artistic nature of the building. So those buildings are now becoming empty. And you have four people that attend church on Sunday and say, look at all the great things that we did in the name of God. And yet it's four people. 12,000 years ago. 12,000 years ago, right. Yeah. And so, so, so now it's, it's a different weird. And so when you're looking at Matthew, these people are, are attracting more and more people. And they're trying to say, well, how do we do this? Mark, you know, you probably got about uh, maybe a couple hundred in the area where Mark was written. By the time you get to Matthew, you, you're, you're looking in the thousands, right? In geographically different places. By the time you get to Luke, uh, there's several more thousand. And I think that's the important part of the language here. There's 5,000 here, 4,000 there. But Dr. Carter goes directly from that, and I'm, and I'm just reading directly from his chapter title, to focusing in on Jesus's identity. And one of the things that Matthew does this thing that's really kind of beautiful, and Dr. Carter just really highlights is this idea that he gets tested by humans and, and uh, they, they request things of him all the, all the way through the rest of his life. Um, so Dr. Carter calls it testing, and re testing Jesus and requesting a sign. Oh, Jesus, if you could do this, show us a sign, you know. Um, so let's start there. The Pharisees and Sadducees came into that, and to test Jesus, they asked him to show them a sign from heaven. He answered, when it is evening, you say, it will be fair weather, for the sky is red. And in the morning, it will be a stormy day, for the sky is red and threatening. You know how to interpret the, the appearance of the sky, but you cannot in, interpret the sign of the times. Um an evil and adulterous generation asks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. Then he left them and went away. Um, Dr. Carter doesn't say this, but I, I kind of look at this as um, he has a temper tantrum and walks off. Yeah. Um, oh, and the sign of Jonah. What do you think that means? That's what we usually say. Just going to say, going to be devoured. I mean, fish came up there. <laughs> you know, Nath, Jonah, and lived in the belly of the well, you know, kind of devoured him, mm -hmm. so to speak. Oh, yeah. So, whatever. That's, that's like, definitely right. Yeah, I'm going to show you who you are. <laughs> me, I kind of, it kind of makes me feel like something's. Something's going to happen to the Roman Empire that they're going to be devoured. That's a very good assumption. Uh, also, Dr. Carter would say something to the effect of um, the sign of Jonah is, is that he actually dies. Like Jonah physically dies 
um, not by his own hand, but by the hand of his stupidity, right? Like did they just list, you know, the story about Jonah, which we don't really highlight, this is the end of his life where he is having a temper tantrum and sits outside of Nineveh while everything goes well. And he eventually dies outside of Nineveh while everything's going good to all of those that follow teaching the teaching of God. Jonah dies uh, away from them. He's, he's not a part of them. Um, and it's a weird story because we always talk about the, the really important parts and being devoured by big fish. He has all of these experiences. <clears throat> he has this huge argument with the people and they repent. <laughs> and he goes and sits outside and pouts. Because he didn't want him to. He wanted him to be destroyed. That's exactly right. So there's that sign also that I got to point out. These people are asking for signs. And he's like, why would you ask for signs? Look at the people of Nineveh. They found out about it just as easily as you could. Are you like just, are you just like Jonah? That's my favorite part. He's, he's using Jonah in the negative term here, which is why I say he walked away the temper tantrum, you know, cuffed away is what it should have said. <clears throat> um, Sally, when we get to verse five, <clears throat> is this the word disciplos or ecclesia? Mathetai. Mathetai. So I'm trying, what's that mean? Those disciples in the lexicon. In the lexicon, okay. <laughs> they didn't differentiate all those words. I think that's. I think it'll work for the, the day because there's going to be a time that I'm going to. Ted gonna says the same else. thing you said. Okay. Yep. Uh, so it's. It was Mothatai back here at 1532. It was the same. Okay, that's. It's going to be. It's going to change at some point today. Okay. I'll watch for it. In the, yeah. So Jesus said to them, watch out and beware of the yeast of the Pharisees and Sadducees. They said to one another, it is because we have brought no bread. And becoming aware of it, Jesus said, ye of little faith. Sorry, it does not say that. It says, you of little faith, why are you talking about having no bread? Do you still not perceive? Do you not remember the five loaves for the 5,000 and how many baskets were gathered? And, or the seven loaves for the 4,000? And how many baskets you gathered? How could you prevail to perceive that I was not speaking about bread? Beware of the yeast of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Then they understood that he had not told them to beware of the yeast of bread, but of the teaching. Uh, the, what's the word teaching there? Okay, good. That's what I was hoping you'd say. <laughs> uh, teaching of the Pharisees and Sadducees. So this uh, did okay. Is, is important because this is a process in the way that they would teach is hear this this is this is the word of the lord right so this is how that was taught if you didn't like it too bad see you later most of the time they didn't understand it all but this time evidently they understood it was not the leaven of the bread it was the leaven of the fair teaching of the pharisees exactly and if the teaching's not of god it's going to be <laughs> It's going to be unleavened bread. It's it's going to be evil. It's going to have very little taste and very little sustenance. One says deceptive teaching of the Pharisee. Interesting translation. And that and that could be I I would go with that translation. Um, but they threw it in. It's not in the Greek. 
Yeah, that's that, that's a. <laughs> they threw it in. They, they, they was definitely do that. It's literally and the and the and the teaching that they're doing is and this is the word of the law. And the word didactic, which has to do with it, that's did a case. I'll say the same. That's what that's from. So this is this is a fascinating passage and the translations that you start to see you can start to see the agenda of sometimes of our translations is like well this is but, they want to make sure you got that that wasn't your teaching right and we so want to make sure the Pharisees and Sadducees are bad guys <laughs> in the Gospel of Matthew we we already get that yeah but sometimes the translations add more um. When, now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say, oh yeah, who, who do people say that the Son of Man is? That's not really how it's translated, but that's okay. And they said, some say John the Baptist, but others Elijah, and some, and still others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He, he said to them, who do you say that I am? Simon Peter uh, said, you are the Messiah or it should be like the Christos. Okay, good. Christos, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter or Petros or Petra. And on this rock, uh, or yeah, Pet, his Petros and on this Petra, right? Okay. I will build my church and the gates of Hades. Is that Gehenna? Um, I do. Oh, no, that's Hades. Will not prevail against it. And I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Then he sternly ordered the disciples to not tell anyone that he was the Messiah. Um. Oh, yeah. Okay. So, so from that time on, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and undergo, undergo great suffering at the hands of the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed. And on the third day, be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, God forbid it, Lord. This must never happen to you. But he turned uh, and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. Is that how Satan? Satanah. Okay, yeah, that's works. Satanah. Satanah. So that's that's the Greek for Satan. Satanah. So this is he's he's literally saying Satan. This this matters, guys, because in Hebrew, they don't know what to do with Satan, but they know that Satan exists. So in Hebrew, you'll see the word Hal Satan or great uh, deceiver. You'll see morning star in in Hebrew. In Greek, they're very adamant about they don't use the word devil uh it's uh the word that she just said the that's that means satanon so this is a deceiving being in their culture um most likely uh the one that has fallen now without getting on a rabbit trail there's an assumption that gets made well let me finish this sentence and we'll go on you are a stumbling block to me, for you are setting your mind not on divine things, but on human things. That becomes the goal at the end of verse 23. 
You are a stumbling block to me like a rock you stumble on. For you are setting your mind not on divine things, but on human things. So but without going on a rabbit trail, I, I, I got I to talk about this for a second. Um, since the beginning of Christianity, there's always been the discussion of heaven and hell. There just has. Um, how does it work? Uh, oh, yeah, Ted wrote, I have heard some interpret it as, Peter, you are doing me as much good as Satan. That's a really good translation. Uh, you definitely got that at school. Um, yeah, Satan uh, is a hard thing for them to figure out what to do with. They all, they all agree, and, and, and please understand, I'm not, I'm not telling you what to believe. I'm just telling you what we know academically in the history of the anthropological studies of this culture. They didn't know what to do with Satan. They didn't know what to do with heaven or hell. And so they kind of write about it flippantly, but they know and they believe with their whole being that Satan was real. Anytime that you were taken away from Torah, something must have done it, right? Like the phrase, the devil made me do it, right? Like that's Flip Wilson. That Flip Wilson, right? So there's, so there's this idea that has been going on for thousands of years that if I'm not doing what God has asked me, something has made me do the wrong thing. And they're looking at this very viscerally. It's, we're talking about the Sally Frasers that are nice and do all kinds of cool things. And then all of a sudden she snaps and she takes the envelope at the post office and she throws it at the post lady uh, and says, you're an idiot for no reason. Like that's not, something that Sally would do. Why did Sally do that? Is the question would happen. Why, why did, well, Satan must have taken hold of her soul because God would, God would never, God would never do that. God would never let her do that. And that would work for each of us. So Satan is a, is a hard thing, which is why I like, when I was in seminary, Ted and I had the same conversation with our professors that when you, it would be, it would have been better written like Peter you're doing me as much good as Satan. Like you're literally taking us off the path. This would be like us in Bible study saying, yes, but what about the constitution of the United States? Well, what about it? Doesn't it refer to this? No, not, not even a little bit. You, you see? And notice that Peter is rebuking Satan, Jesus here. Publicly, why? Why do you think he's doing that? It messes up his idea. God's not going to establish a kingdom if he's going to get killed. Exactly. And the devil made him do it. And the <laughs> devil made him do it. I mean, somebody had to do it in public, and so Peter did it because the devil made. And it, and it, and it's only the people that mean the most to us. Otherwise, we wouldn't care. Exactly. In, in 22, the translation is, God forbid it, Lord. But what the Greek says is, may God be gracious to you or merciful to you. Right. It does not say, God forbid. No. I've heard people say, God forbid, like they were quoting that. And 
That's not what it says. Well, and no one ever asks God, how do I say this? Again, in the Hebrew culture, you, you can't ask God to forbid something. You would have to ask God for mercy. Oh, okay. So that translation that you just mentioned from Greek would be better. You, you have to ask God for mercy. You can't tell God, hey, God, don't make, let me do this. <laughs> right? That's, that's like saying, God, I want to make a straight A on this test. God doesn't worry about those things. So the Greek translation should have been translated as, God, please be merciful upon us. You so know, this would never happen. That's right. So this would never happen. So that the Greek translation here would have been better than what we've translated it as. You, you can't force God to do anything ever. Um, which is why this is a, a hard passage. Because if this is Jesus's identity, and he's done all of these things, who do you say that I am? Well, some say that you're this. Some say that you're that. Well, who do you say that I am? Well, I say that you're the Messiah, the Son of, you know, uh, he doesn't say Son of God. Christ. So, yeah, Christ. The, you are Christ, <clears throat> the Son of the living God, which is a huge statement. Um, he's just declared this, and now he says, Oh, and by the way, I have to get to Jerusalem because I got to die yeah. <laughs> in order for all these things to happen. Just hold this in your head for just a second because we're going to get to a weird place. <laughs> As if this wasn't weird enough. As if we <laughs> then Jesus told his disciples, if any want to become my followers, let them deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For those who want to save their life will lose it. And those who lose their life will, for my sake, will find it for whatever it will profit them if they gain the whole world, but forfeit their life. Now, the translation is soul. soul. Yeah, I was going to say it's not soul. life, it's soul. And that's a very Seems well thought out process at this point. Or what will they give in return for their life, for the Son soul. of Man, for, for the return for their soul? For the Son of Man is to come with his, uh, is it Angeloi? Lord, it's uh, Doxo, Doxe. Oh, so the doxology. This is the, the host of angels. Glory. glory. Yeah, nice. In uh, the glory of his father, and then he will repay everyone for what has been done. Truly, I tell you, there are some standing here who will not taste death before the son of, they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. So now that this messes it up a little. How does that change anything that we've read? Let's go with the idea that of the, the giving up of one's life. Let's start there. What does that mean? Why, why does that matter? If you have a new empire, you gotta have an army. 
Do they volunteer to be in the Roman army? Probably not. No. The cross is a big deal. It's a it's a humiliating death by the empire. Um, that's a, that's an important thing to notice. Well, he must deny himself. I mean, you really have to give. You have to give your whole self mm -hmm. to following Christ, not just what you want, not what you think's good, because he's going to know what's good and bad in you anyway. Mm -hmm. Father does. <clears throat> that you have to, you really have to give everything. You can't pick and choose. You have to let him lead. Ah, good. You have to let God lead. You can't pick and choose, so God's got to be in control of that. Who's What's God in control of? Now remember, we're talking historical understanding here. If Jesus is the new emperor, God is in control of... I know it sounds... Of everything. Of everything. Your heart? Yeah, so now we're talking soul. Soul, heart, this, I, I was, didn't want to scoot past it, but the soul thing is important here. Compassion. I mean, you've got to have, with everybody else being as poor and um, how they lived at that time, you have to be compassionate if, to understand how they're living, that you've been there and that you're, you know, you've got to give them some of what you have. Mm-hmm. And the empire and the empire that they're living in currently does not allow you to do that. In God's empire, you're giving all of yourself, including your very essence, which is what soul to the Greeks, well, to the ones writing this would have meant, which includes your heart, your passion, your motives, your life, your, your journey. <clears throat> soul is not something you own. That's something that God does. Um, one of the things that Dr. Carter says here that when I was in his class, it, it stung when he said it. What is this passage not telling you to do? Think only of yourself. Think of only of yourself. So that means... I don't, I don't get to start a rebellion. <laughs> Make sense? I don't get to stand up against the empire by myself. Um, I got to think about my neighbor. I, I mean. That makes it almost like everybody else comes first. Exactly. This is art. What stung when Dr. Carter said this was, this is not, and he wrote it down in this one. I, I remember as, as we were having this conversation, I just kind of looked ahead. He says, saving one's life means not confronting the injustice of the present, but settling for safe self-interest, for safe self-interest. To lose one's life is to embrace the alternative practices 
and community that embody God's empire. Right. To lose one's life is to embrace the alternative practices and community that embody God's empire. In other words, alternative practices from Jesus's world are filled with nonviolence where everybody's fed because we all take care of each other. There's no hierarchical structure except Jesus is in charge. Pilate's not involved. Sadducees and Pharisees are not involved. In other words, but stunned, and I don't know if I agree with him 100%, but it means that I keep my head low, I take care of my neighbor, and eventually God will take over. That's what he tried to say. I, I don't get that from this passage. But that's what he said. And so I have to say that because, you know, we're using his commentary. But, you, he, you know, the things that he doesn't do are fascinating. Is he speaking against slavery here? You're going to take care of your neighbor. You're not going to have to be slaves to you. <laughs> and Jesus is pretty adamant about what you should and shouldn't do. <clears throat> you see how this is un this is uncomfortable. If you look at it from that perspective, all of a sudden it changes a little bit, not in a good way. This becomes a very selfish, motivated process, except for. If I'm doing what I'm supposed to be doing in the embodiment of God's empire, those things will work itself out because God is in control, not me. And that's why I have a problem with this. So in the 20th century, in the 19th century, did we stay quiet when we saw injustices? As I'm speaking to a room full of women in TED. <laughs> Did you all have the opportunity in the 19th and 20th centuries? Did you have the ability to vote? Did you have the ability to have your own jobs? Yeah. You, you do now because somebody, somebody, somebody fought for it. So I, you see why I have a problem. This is where it doesn't necessarily translate, but then it does. You, know, you could go anthropologically with this all day long, but this has led people to say, this is the cross I choose to die on. The aspect of injustice that I see in humanity. We don't live in a Roman Empire. So we got to do better. You see? I'm not trying to think meta, but I am. It's, it is a, it's a big thought metaphysically. This passage of scripture has used more for the aspect of injustice than any other passage in the Bible. Um, we say it all the time, this is the cross I choose to die on, or, um, and it's used here. But Dr. Clutter is saying in the first century that it's the opposite way that that would have been used. So I need to push pause on the recording for just a second. Sorry. <laughs> You can't avoid the soul conversation <laughs> on a Bible study. Do we 
as a church spend that much time about it? Because I can't say that I wake up in the morning and say, okay, so, oh, yeah. you know. Why not? <laughs> no, I mean, sincere. Like, why do we not do that? I mean, I kind of said it in the middle of my rant, my little soapbox statement. Why do we not as a church? Or Christians in general, or... why do we not talk about souls? To me, talking about the soul is like very personal. Oh, yeah. We don't, we don't like to share some of that. I agree. It's a definite personal thing. There's a very pragmatic thing about the soul that we just tend to kind of walk over. You're not in control of it. What is the soul? Let's let's go there. Let's have that kind of discussion is for a second. Is it the same as the Holy Spirit? Not necessarily. Holy Spirit is something that God has given to you to guide you. I like to refer to it as the Jiminy Cricket of God. Okay. Right? This is who you are. This is what you're good at. Do it to it for the glory of God. So that's a gift. It's not something that. So we, soul can be a part of the Holy Spirit, but not necessarily. Okay, we can go there. I, I'm being sincere because this is a problem. What else? What else do we know about the soul? It's fascinating that this is from Greek into English instead of the word. What, what was it, Sally? What were we? Zuxes, yeah, but what was the the life? It was life instead of soul, right? That was how it was translated. Yeah. If you give up oh, your yeah. soul, yeah. It was translated life, but in Greek, it, it's the word soul. Zuxes. Yeah, what that's that? and that one specifically. Uh, 26, <clears throat> and 25. Mm -hmm. Dr. Cards, I'm not going to spend time on this because this is a theological debate. <laughs> Not a historical one. What is what is a what is a soul? Let's just start there. Oh, Ted says, if you are poor, your soul is your one possession that can't be taken away by the empire. That'll be that'll preach, Ted. Good. <laughs> but what is your soul? I can't think of another word, but I just want to say it's your essence. Oh, essence. I like that. Um, you know, and we're all different in what our soul is. But, you know, when you think back as a person has passed away, you think about them and either their struggles through their life or the things that they've seen through their lifetime or the things that they've done through their lifetime and that kind of to me defines their soul and it's all i guess it's all i don't know for sure if they did it for the glory of god you know whatever they did or whatever they saw but it was something i think god had a plan in their life 
for them to be able to see and do those things. And that accumulated into one thing that we call our soul. Okay, good answer. I think of my soul as being things that nobody else knows about me. <laughs> good. Nobody else knows about you. And maybe even yourself. It could be. Okay. You know, I mean, you have no idea some of the thoughts I've had. Some of them are <laughs> not so good. Some of them, you know, are good. But it's the things I do not share. Okay. I like, I like this discussion. This is good. Sally, what is the soul to you? I don't know. I was just thinking that the, the source of the conscience may be the thing that says that is not what God would have you do. Source of a conscience would maybe not would be God would what you do. So that's it. Aristotle. That's that's where that would go. How about you guys online? What is your soul? Ted says, your soul is what makes you, you. I like it. I was thinking it's your well-being. It's, and I agree with kind of what Diane said, it's kind of like between you and God. It's your inner thoughts, your inner, it's your body and soul, I guess. It's what's inside you. I like it. Kind of your relationship, your personal relationship with God. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Nobody knows what I say when I ride my lawnmower out of the God. <laughs> oh, that's, that's a really interesting uh, way to do that. When I am disconnected from the world and i'm connected to god in that little brief moment of connection that connection place is with your soul i like i like the idea the imagery is cool well well go back to what ted said your if you are poor your soul is one your one possession that cannot be taken away by the empire and your soul is what makes you you It's your identity, I think, is what I don't want to speak for Ted, but I. And it's your internal identity. Uh, I messed that up, Ted. I'm not saying that right. So I think the part that's beautiful in the 21st century is, is the idea of soul conversations has been expanded a lot. Um, in the first century, Plato and Aristotle, maybe even Socrates brings up this conversation about what is the soul. Um, there happens to be a podcast with Dr. Bond and Joshua Bell specifically discussing the difference between uh, philosophical soul and a Christian-based understanding of soul with a little bit of Hebrew soul intermingled. So I'm going to give you just a, a brief, I mean, literally brief, because this could take all day. Plato, Aristotle, Socrates, they all recognize that there's a piece of us that's an essence. 
uh, bits and pieces of what makes us unique to a divine being, whether it's God, whether it's the multiple gods that end up everybody worshiping, that connects us to that divine being, however that works. Christianity starts to change this idea because what happens is it's in the middle of Plato and Aristotle's discussion about the soul. The Hebrew culture, on the other hand, believes that the soul is the ruach of the human being. That essence is what God, that life-giving essence, that's what makes you unique. That ruach is the, for their terminology, would be soul. Living, breathing, conscious body. Living, breathing, conscious body. That sounds like Aristotle. I just, you know, I hadn't stopped, thought about it, so I looked up soul in here, and then also it says, what is the difference between a soul and a spirit? The soul definition, soul is our humanity that makes us feel emotions. Nice. The spirit is our deeper connection with the Lord when we believe in God. And that is a, a definitely good definition that's a Christian-based one. Yes, yes, it says it is. So what happens is from the Hebrew culture, when you get to the Gospel of Matthew and they start using this soul word, they are now changing ruach to pneuma, that that soul is that essence of you, and it travels to heaven, and your physical body stays here. That's a new idea. For us, it's something that we've always grown up with. Uh, but this soul, this essence that is us, travels to be with God. And that's where the language comes. I go to prepare a place of many rooms. Why? What, what difference would that make? Well, your soul's got to go someplace. Make sense? So by the time Matthew is working through this, if you're giving of your entire being your soul will be connected with God after death through Jesus Christ. Does that make sense? I'm trying to make sense. It's a, it's a very big conversation. And you're talking about literally thousands of years of disagreement. Um, the, all, of, all of the answers about soul are, I think they're all right. You know, natives, uh, Native Americans especially, when you talk about soul, it can be stolen. Like um, there was a time in a culture where you couldn't take pictures of Native yeah. Americans because you would literally take their essence with you and put it on something that they had no control over. Um, that was a real thing. Um, Muhammad in the Quran, the you can, there is no image of Muhammad in the in the Muslim world. Why? Because his soul went on to be with God or Allah. And, and so therefore there's no need to make images of him because you're not supposed to worship Muhammad. Uh, now the world has got that misinterpreted, but you don't worship Muhammad, you worship Allah. In the Jewish faith, when you talk about uh, God, there's no images of Abraham, right? Or Elijah, why? Because, well, they've moved away from this plane to the other. We don't need images of that. So then why would it be so important for us to have images of Christ? Well, he's not here. He was the physical embodiment of God. Your image is important to God. So the images of Christ are designed for the Christians to, 
to show a, a physical connection to something that's divine. The only one. Now, Buddha is just since we're going through this, it's a whole different thing. And soul is something that is interchanged through nature and the universe and existence. And, and the only reason that you have an image of Buddha is that there's this moment of connection, but not to worship Buddha. That, that's where it gets confusing. It's, it's literally supposed to be, this is a place of sacredness for you to be in touch with the universe. So this is why it's confusing for us. Soul is a hard conversation. And the Greek word that Sally pointed out, that soul is closer to Plato and Aristotle's understanding with Christianity uh, spritzing it, yeah, sprinkling it, and going, ah, the soul has got to be something different. Now, here's why it's important. Look at the beginning of chapter 17. He has this conversation, and he says, six days later, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and his brother John, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. Notice they're going up above to do this. And then he was, it says transfigured, but the language here is metamorphosis. Metamorphoso, which is he physically changed, metamorphosized, right? That's the word that comes from before them. And his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became dazzling white. Suddenly there appeared to him uh, Moses and Elijah talking with him. Then Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, I uh, will make it, or we will make three dwellings here, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah, because this is something beautiful. We want to capture this moment. We want to be a part of their essence. Uh, and while he was still speaking, suddenly a bright cloud overshadowed them, and from the cloud, a voice said, this is my son, the beloved. With him, I am well pleased. Listen to him. Now, when the disciples heard this, they fell to the ground and were overcome by fear. But Jesus came and touched them, saying, get up and do not be afraid. And when they looked up, they saw no one except Jesus himself alone. As they were coming down the mountain, Jesus ordered them, tell no one about the vision until the Son of Man has been raised from the dead. And the disciples asked him, why then do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? He replied, Elijah is indeed coming and will restore all things. But I tell you that Elijah has already come. And they did not recognize him, but they did to him whatever they pleased. So also the Son of Man is about to, be, to suffer at their hands. And then the disciples understood that he was speaking to them about John the Baptist. So why does that matter to soul? Jesus physically changed in front of them to prove that he was not like them. So my favorite part of, uh, if, if Kevin and I were still doing that part of the podcast, it might, my favorite question probably would be something like, so did Jesus have a soul? Did Jesus need a soul? He was soul. Oh, good answer, Sally. Or was he just soul? What did she say? Or he was soul. He was soul. Like his entire being was soul. If we all can acknowledge the fact that it's the essence or the uh, presence of God. I love the, yeah, Ted says, I love this part. This is my son. Listen to him. 
yeah, that's it's pretty powerful there. This is a this soul conversation that is now transfigured. Liz, okay, James and John and Peter, they were all Jewish. Absolutely. So they had the laws of the Torah. Absolutely. And the stories. Absolutely. That have been passed down for generations and generations. Up until that time, <clears throat> up until this time, had anybody heard God? Yes, in the Exodus story. Okay. And they saw God through a cloud as he spoke to the people, but, but not, this is my son, the beloved. Right. But no, no day, no modern day. That's right. These people, nobody had ever heard or nope. really seen anything of God. Nope. And do you think, my question is, is do you think God was, or all-knowing God, knowing what's coming, knew that there was going to be doubt that Jesus was his son and that we really need to listen to him, what he tells us? Do you think that part of this was God saying, <laughs> showing them? Yeah. You know, sometimes you have to have proof. <laughs> yeah, and I think, I think Matthew is trying to say, um, there was this event that took place with Peter, James, and John that we weren't supposed to tell about until now. And here's your proof. Like it's a, it's not an afterthought. It's a, there was this one time we weren't allowed to talk about it while Jesus was alive. And now that he is dead and frozen to heaven and something, all the world has changed. We have to tell you this story. There's an urgency to the language here. Um, it's very short, very sweet, straight to the point, very um, exact in the in the language of how they describe what takes place. The people are named, right? Mm -hmm. um, and then and then there's a direct correlation to the story of John the Baptist. Um, what do we do with John the Baptist? You know, like how's that supposed to work? Well, Matthew uh, puts a bow on it. This John the Baptist's death was not in vain. He was supposed to have come and died. Um, there's, a, there's an interesting dialogue that takes place with this whole thing. Uh, that, that we're not, we don't know because we weren't there. Oh, yeah, I love how Ted says it. Sometimes we withhold information and save it for the right time for maximum impact. And I, and I think that's exactly what the Matthew writer is saying here. Um, that we're saving that for that exact moment. Um, there's, a, there's a struggle here also with the building of the tents. Um, in the Jewish faith, there are uh, shrines, for lack of a better phrase, I don't want to call them shrines, that are left in the names of people like you got you got you know, like like churches, um, schools. Um, for example, you go to. I've already told you guys this a hundred times, but in Hebron, uh, there's a mosque that has the the tomb of Abraham, Isaac, Sarah, Leah, Rachel, all in the same place. Uh, that's um, 
that Jews and Muslims all get to use and Christians all walk in there together. And we acknowledge that that's probably where Abraham was buried. That's how I say that. Yeah. Because uh, we won't know. Because nobody will go in that cave. <laughs> I mean, like, like for real. Like even today, the and I and I'm going to sound pretentious, but there's there's a superstition that you're not going to come out of there because that's a holy place. Like there's been stories of people that have climbed into the into the cave to see if the bones are still there and that they weren't stolen in all the many wars that took place and that they came down and then shortly after that they got sick and died because they were in the presence of the divine and they were not invited there right um that is something that we're seeing in this passage as well this is holy ground we need to sanctify it uh, which is fascinating to me because again when you go to israel and palestine there's the church of the feeding of the 5,000, and literally down the road is the church of the feeding of the 4,000. And one in the Byzantine tiles on the floor has five loaves, and the other one has seven loaves. You know, like it's it's fascinating. Or two loaves here and five fish here, and you're like, where did that sort? Well, that's Coptic. And, you know, they knew that better than you. And, uh, and then, like, even in my uh, chalice and patent that I brought back from Jerusalem, in the image, there's there's a uh, there's four loaves of bread instead of five. And you're like, well, it's, where's the fifth loaf? And they're like, well, that's Jesus, duh. And you're like, oh, I never would have put that together. He's the bread of life, they would sing to you. And, and you go, well, I feel like an idiot. You know, like that's, that's kind of awesome. Story, I yeah, so I forgot about that idea. Jesus is the bread of life, and we believe that. So here, this, this is, they're struggling with, their own faith traditions, they're struggling with their own understanding of soul, and they're also understanding that in the midst of this, uh, Jesus's identity is different than humans. Now, before I end this, I, I, I want us to make sure we remember that Matthew, Mark, and Luke struggle with Jesus's identity. Is he the son of man? which would be the same name that uh, the Caesars use for the people of the empire. Is he the son of God? Not plural, but singular, which is the name that the Jews would have used if he was truly the Mashiach. Um, is he divine or is he human or is he both? Matthew, Mark, and Luke all struggle with this. By the time we get to the Gospel of John, theoretically, they've worked out a lot of those what do we do with this language? You're seeing it fleshed out here in the Gospel of Matthew, and it looks very different than the other synoptics. Um, Shows he has no limits. And he has no limits. Okay. I think I'm going to push pause there or stop the recording um, for today, and we will pick up at chapter 17, verse 14 for next week.